Welcome to Lessons for Life, where we seek to learn, love, and live the Word of God. Now, here is James Long, Jr. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Luke chapter 1? Luke chapter 1. Can you imagine? It's been 400 years and uh, it's been silence. God has not spoken in a prophetic way to his people in 400 years. And then all of a sudden, God bursts forth. He speaks to Zechariah, he speaks to Mary. And he says that something new is about to occur, and they're blown away. You know, I want you to consider this, that you really can't understand your Bible unless you understand the person of Christ. You can't really understand the Old Testament unless you understand Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So as you read the Old Testament, I know sometimes people struggle with reading the Old Testament. If you can see Christ in the Old Testament, because it is looking forward to the king, and the Old Te- New Testament is looking backwards to this king. So I want you to consider that as we look at this passage. Jesus and God is active in human history. God has never stopped working. Even when it seems that he's silent, he has never stopped working. He is sovereign. He is providential. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is a lover. And he is a person, a God who can be known. You hear that song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And Jesus is on his way. And Zechariah is hearing that his son is going to be the forerunner. I want to give you a little bit of background here. So if you look at Luke chapter 1, look at verses 5 through 6. It says this, in the, in the days of Herod, uh, king of Judea, there was a, a priest named Zechariah in the division of Abijah. And he had a wife, and the daughters of Aaron, her name was Elizabeth. Um, Aaron, um, Zechariah was a priest. Uh, his wife was from a priestly line as well. And we see that this couple was a couple that was... One who were righteous, verse 6, righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. You know, when the Bible talks about walking, it talks about this, this action. It's a continuous action of life. It talks about a manner of life, a way of life. It's ongoing. It's about advancement. When you walk, you're taking steps and you're moving forward. So as they're walking, they are walking in the commandments. Now, I need you to know that the way verse 6 says here, it says they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Don't misunderstand this. It's not saying that they were perfect. Um, They were God-fearing. They loved the word. They followed the word, but they were sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and the Savior was going to be coming. So verse 5, we see that Elijah, I'm sorry, Zechariah is is a priest, and his wife is part of a priestly line as well. So, so she knew, like uh, a pastor's wife knows, she was a she was a um, a priest from a priestly family. She knew what it was uh, to be in service there. And so now they get married. 
You know, you have a wedding ceremony and these two people get married. And, and can you imagine what it must have been like to see them walk down the aisle and they get married to one another and everybody is pronouncing blessing upon them, hoping that they're going to be fruitful and multiply, that they're going to have plenty of kids. And years after years go, and, and the pain is just so apparent. They try to have children. They, they pray for it over and over again. But the fact you see in verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It's kind of stark the way the verse says it. It just says they had no children. I like one commentator. He said this, there were so many prayers, so many tears, so many unanswered questions between those lines. And with an incredible cultural and familial pressure to have kids, this childless family felt deficient. They felt that God had passed them over. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in a situation where you've desperately wanted something from God and you prayed to him and you've prayed earnestly over and over again and it almost feels as though the prayers are not going any higher than the ceiling or that God has become deaf to your prayers? And so what can happen in your life is that the disappointment can turn to sorrow. The sorrow can turn to despair. The despair can turn to a level of resolve. It's just never going to happen. We've been passed over all of these years. I've long since packed away the hopes. I've long since packed away the dreams. It's over. Verse 8 comes on the scene. It says, now while he, Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God, when his, his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So what had happened was this. There were 24 um, divisions um, of priests, and I guess they would serve twice a year. So you would be on in your division twice a year. But there was something special about being offered the opportunity to go in, and this was chosen by lot to go in to offer incense. It was just in front of the Holy of Holies, just in front of the veil, and you were given this opportunity. It's a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And Zechariah was chosen by Lot. They offered this um, incense. This is probably the most important day of Zechariah's life, and he has been planning for this day all of his life. He's been doing his preparations. He knows exactly what he needs to do. He goes inside the temple. He is offering incense And then all of a sudden, something miraculous happens. The people outside were were praying outside at the hour of incense, verse 10, and there appeared to him the angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled. I, I would be too, right? Wouldn't you be? I mean, if it's like all of a sudden an angel appears, it's like, whoa. And he fell and a fear fell upon him. I love how Gabriel spoke here. He says, do not fear. Your prayers have been heard. What prayers? Your prayers have been heard. You mean the prayers that have been offering here at the altar of incense? Perhaps, but I think he means more than that. Your prayers for a baby have been heard. Decade after decade, we've been praying for this. And God, you haven't heard us. Yes, he has. God, you haven't answered. 
Yes, he will. And amazingly, Gabriel tells him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about what John is going to become like. I don't know about you, but you know, one, fearful seeing the angel Gabriel standing there, and then two, my prayers have been answered, and I've been kind of knocked off guard, and now three, I'm going to have a son. This long-awaited prayer has been answered, and then you're going to tell me that my son is going to do some incredible things. Verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. That may have been a Nazarite vow. We don't know. He was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, that God had regenerated him and brought the Holy Spirit into his life, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit inside his mother's womb, amazingly. And he will turn many people, many of the children of Israel to the Lord, and they will go, he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, the great prophet from the Old Testament, and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What an announcement. I'm going to have a son, and I'm going to have a son who's going to be the great prophet, who's going to be in the line of Elijah, and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. Wouldn't you be excited? Oh, yeah, right. Problem is, remember I had talked about this disappointment turns to sorrow? And the sorrow turns to despair, and the despair turns to resolve. Zechariah heard this, and he says what? Show me a sign. In essence, see here. He says, how shall I know this? Now, it's interesting. When Pastor Doug was preaching last week on Mary, it's interesting that Mary had a similar type question, like, how can this be? But this is a little bit different. See, I, I see when Mary asked the question, there was a level of humble doubt that I just can't understand how this can happen. But here, there was a level of disbelief. Show me a sign that this is actually true. And this, <laughs> this is amazing. Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I am a voice person for God. I stand in his presence. I'm here to give you this wonderful testimony. I've been called by God to come here and give you this good news, and you're asking me for a sign? <sighs> Zechariah, verse 20. And behold, I'll give you a sign. You'll be silent. And none unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. He was struck mute. He couldn't speak. A little bit later on, it seems as though not only was he unable to speak, but he was unable to hear as well, perhaps. So he was stuck in this solitude of silence for nine months because he did not believe the word of the Lord. Then it went on and talked about uh, Elizabeth hearing about this, and Elizabeth was going to be overjoyed. And Elizabeth, in verse 24, she was going to conceive. 
And for five months, she hid herself away saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach from among the people. Pause. So that's the background. Let me tell you a little bit about the setting of this great praise that um, Zechariah gives. Jump with me to verse 57. So now in this period of time, it's been nine months, and Zechariah has seen his wife grow and a baby growing inside, and he has not been able to speak, and perhaps he's not been able to hear, so that has cut him off of being able to communicate. And I want you to consider that if you've not been able to have the opportunity to hear or speak, what do you do? You're left to yourself. And I wonder what Zechariah was thinking about over all these months. I bet you, as a priest, he was going back through the Old Testament covenant, and he was thinking about this forerunner, and he was thinking about the Messiah, and he was having these verses going through, and he was just building up inside and just, I want to be able to share this information. And as he's been going to his word and holding on to it, then the time comes, verse 57, Elizabeth gives birth to their son. And it's a small town, and what happens is that the town gathers around to see Elizabeth and this boy, this little boy, and and they gather around just to celebrate with them. Now, have you ever had a family member try to help you name your child? Have you ever had that? You know, you you name the child, and everyone in the family kind of goes, huh? And maybe they'll say it privately, but some will be even bold enough to say it to your face. You can't name your child that. Well, that's exactly what was happening here. They were thinking in their minds after all these years, Zechariah, this boy is probably going to name Zechariah Jr., right? Pretty good name, right? James Jr. No, okay. (laughs) Zechariah Jr., pretty cool. But Elizabeth says, no, he's not going to be named Zechariah, he will be called John. The relatives are sitting there saying, John? John? There's no John in your family. Zechariah's name? What are you talking about, Elizabeth? So what they did was they said, I'm not going to talk to Elizabeth any longer. We're going to go and talk to Zechariah, the man over here, right? And now they're trying to make signs to Zechariah, because that's why I think he can't hear, trying to make signs of the name of the child. And when they're doing the charades and trying to figure it out, and Zechariah finally gets it, oh, they want to know what the name is. And he asks for a writing tablet. And as he writes down, he writes down, verse 63, his name is John. Actually, in the Greek, which I love, it actually starts with the word John is his name. The emphatic nature. And the people are sitting there saying, wait a minute. What in the world is going on? Why John? And maybe they start to think back. Zechariah hasn't spoken since he left the temple nine months ago. This old couple has been given a baby and now they're saying his name is John. Something miraculous is happening here. They had brought the baby to be circumcised as part of the covenant and then named at this time. And Zechariah in verse 63 says, John is his name. And then 64 comes. All of a sudden, immediately, his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed. And it's like the watershed has come. I have been worshiping. I've been glorifying God for months, desiring just to tell you how much I praise you, God. And what comes out of his mouth is this great song of praise. 
This morning, I want to talk to you about four elements of this song that I think are really important for us to hold on to. Four elements of this song that I think speak to us today. Zechariah in verse 67 says this, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. He prophesied, and he began with this word, blessed be. In Latin, that's where we get the word benedictus from. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all that hate us, to show mercy, promise to our forefathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we be delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days. It's basically where the Benedictus ends. So this morning, I want you to consider four things. That God rescued and redeemed his people by the price. And there was a precious price and he redeemed us. He brought us back from bondage. Second, I want you to understand that God has remembered his promises. God is a covenant keeper. He doesn't forget his promises. Third, I want you to know that he has rescued his people. He has restored us. He is reconciling us. And then finally, he is releasing us to proclaim the gospel message out to the world. Well, first, let's start with this. He's redeemed his people. Look with me in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people. For nine months, Zechariah could not believe that his wife could bear a child. Or nine months prior, he couldn't believe that his wife could bear a child. Now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He has a confidence in God's redeeming work. And he has such confidence that if you look here, he is talking about the redemption in the past tense. The man who couldn't believe that God can open his wife's um, dead womb, he now believes that God has promised salvation is so assured that it is done in the past tense, which is so amazing. Blessed be God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. What does it mean to be redeemed? Redeemed means to be bought back. And what did he buy us back with? Silver and gold? No. Peter said he was bought us back, and we saw that in the song this morning, with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Lord God has come to us and has visited us. Jesus has come near to us. God has become with us. He has visited us, and now he is redeeming his people. He's going to be redeeming his people for the precious blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's raised up, verse 69, a horn of salvation. It's a great word. Back in the Old Testament, a horn of salvation was not a musical instrument. The horn of salvation was looking to the horns of an animal. In Psalm 92, it says this, For behold, your enemies, O Lord, behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered, but you have exalted my horns like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. The horn was a symbol of victory. It was a symbol of strength. 
In Micah chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat into pieces many people, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, the wealth to the Lord of the whole earth." The, the horn was viewed as a weapon. The horn was viewed as an element of strength. The horn was viewed as a means of victory. So when he was talking about the fact that Jesus Christ is the horn of salvation, he is your means to salvation. He's your victory in salvation. And he is the weapon that will destroy sin, Satan, and death. Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the horn of our salvation. And he comes from the house and the lineage of David, the servant David. He has redeemed you, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 69. He's not only done that, but he has not only redeemed his people, he has remembered his promises. He remembered his promise to David. It says in verse 69, in the house of the servant, his servant David, that that Jesus Christ was going to come through the line of King David. It's part of the oath or covenants that God had made in the Old Testament. There were a series of covenants in the Old Testament, some of a salvific nature and others that were not. And there was this, there were some covenants in the Old Testament where God promised that he was going to bring a redeemer. And he says that he was going to bring a redeemer through the line of David. A covenant is this solemn agreement from the Old Testament. It's a, it's a negotiated, it's unilateral agreement. And what it is, is this, this promise that is made. It's a claim that is held. And there are obligations that are granted on both sides. If you think back to the Old Testament, there were a series of covenants, but David was given a covenant and Abraham was given a covenant in the Old Testament. Look here in, with Zechariah a little bit later on. It says in verse um, 73, and an oath that he swore to our forefather Abraham to grant us. So he had made a promise. God had made a promise long ago that he was going to bring a savior to Abraham and he made a promise to David and that was a covenant that he kept. A covenant was identified by a sovereign. A covenant sets out a plan of what is going to happen. There are stipulations in this covenant and there are vows that are kept. If you take the time to go back to Genesis chapter 12 and 15, you will hear of how God made a covenant with Abraham. And it's this graphic thing that he did As he's making this covenant with Abraham, he has Abraham kill animals and split these animals two by two, as if we have these sections and there's an aisle. And the way the covenant would normally act is this, these pieces of animals on the side, the two people in the covenant would walk down between these pieces and in essence say this, that if I break this covenant to you, I will become like these dead pieces on the ground. It's a solemn oath. But if you read in Genesis chapter 15, it wasn't Abraham and God that walked down these pieces. It was God alone that walked down these pieces and said, I am going to redeem your people. And it is on me. I've got this. And he goes down the aisle between these pieces and says, I'm going to keep my covenant to you. Centuries later, God is bringing his redeemer. 
And what Zechariah is doing is he's just pouring out this praise from the Old Testament. He's saying that, God, you have kept your word. You've remembered your word. You've remembered your word to David. You've remembered your word to Abraham. You're a God of mercy. You're a God of grace. You're a God of kindness. You're a God of peace. The third thing I want you to see is that God has not only redeemed us at a price. God has not only remembered his promises, but God has rescued his people. Verse 16, uh, 77. It says this. All of this is to give you the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of his tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God has rescued his people. He has restored us. He's redeemed us. He has given us first the knowledge of salvation. If you sit here this morning and you know Christ as your personal savior, God has opened your eyes and drawn you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has opened your ears. He's given you a new heart. He has given you not more, more than just intellectual knowledge of the gospel. He has given you an experiential knowledge of the gospel that deep down you have known that you are a sinner in desperate need of a savior, that I am guilty and I need your grace. And what God has done for you is he's given you a knowledge of salvation. I was talking to a friend earlier this week who who knows the Bible like the back of his hand. He has read it over and over again, and he doesn't trust in the Messiah. He does not trust in Christ alone as a Savior. He reads the book. He says, I've read this book tons of times. I've read it more than my Christian wife has read it, and I don't believe it. What God has done for his wife as he's given her a knowledge of salvation. And I am praying that God will give him the same knowledge of salvation. And he's given that to you if you trust in him. Not only has he given him a knowledge, given us a knowledge of salvation to, to rescue us, he has also forgiven our sins, the greatest problem that we have. In Jeremiah, I love this passage. It says in verses, uh, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Well, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be their my people and no longer shall uh, each one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord for they all know me. What God has done is he's given this incredible opportunity to know him. But then it goes on to say this, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What God has done preciously is to give us a knowledge of salvation. He's given us forgiveness of sin and it's all by his tender mercy. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, the Lord God, God moves in compassion for people. He moves in compassion for lost sinners. He sees people in need, in desperate need. And God was the one that came for you. He came near. He visited us. We don't come to him. He came to us. Amazingly, in his tender mercy and compassion, the one who has been offended 
is offering you grace this morning and the kindness of his favor. He's given light. Out of darkness, there is light. It's been 400 years without hearing anything from God. And God is breaking through the darkness and giving the light of the gospel. And he is pointing you on the path of peace. God has redeemed us at a price, the precious blood of his Lord Jesus Christ. He has remembered his covenant promises to you. He is rescuing his people. And that for those that are in him, especially John, he is releasing you to proclaim the gospel message. Go back with me to verse 76. It says that, and you, child, you know what's amazing? I love my kids, right? I can boast on my kids all the time, right? Zechariah, when he got an opportunity to speak for the first time in nine months, who is he talking about? He's talking about another child. He's not talking about his own child. All of this is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with John yet. It's only then until he gets to verse 76 that he takes, I almost, I almost see him taking the child in his hands. He says, and you, oh child, are going to be a prophet of the most high, verse 76. And you will go before the Lord and his, prepare his ways. John's position was he was going to be a prophet. He was actually going to be the last and the greatest prophet of the old covenant. That you've got Moses and Elijah and all of these prophets from the Old Testament. And the very last one was Malachi. And John, you're going to be the last and the greatest prophet. He's holding his baby. Oh man, the pride that he must have had. That God, you've given me this incredible gift. His position was going to be a prophet. What was his purpose? Some of you wonder what your purpose is. You know, what is my purpose in life? You know, there was a whole book written, Our Purpose-Driven Life, right? What's the purpose of your life? Well, John knew what the purpose of his life is. The purpose was of his life was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Can you imagine if you knew what your purpose was right from the womb, that God has already given you your job description? You're going to be my preparer. Back in this time, what they would do is if a king would come into town, they would have somebody go ahead and start to prepare the roads to make sure the road was straight and that there were no holes so that when this king's caravan came in, that it would not be encumbered. And so similarly, what happens is now John is being called to prepare the way for Jesus to make the path straight to tell the people that you desperately need a savior. The people at this time thought the Messiah was going to be one that was going to rescue them from the bonds of Rome. What John needed to do was to help them to see that they needed to be rescued greater from the bonds of Rome or any other political level. They needed to be rescued spiritually. And so John went out into the wilderness and he talked about sin and he talked about repentance and he was calling them to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What an amazing opportunity that he had. And what was his proclamation? His proclamation is salvation is coming. How great is your faithfulness, Lord. You know that hymn, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I sing. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. 
Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. I could see Zechariah singing that hymn. So Zechariah has been quiet for a long time. And he's gotten an opportunity to be able to tell the gospel. He's been given an opportunity to be able to share the good news of salvation. He's been given an opportunity to be able to say that I am God's servant. What was the name that he gave his son? The name he gave his son was what? John. You know what I found interesting? Do you know what Zechariah means? Zechariah means God remembers. Hmm. What does Elizabeth mean? God is faithful. God is faithful. What does John mean? God is merciful. And what does Jesus mean? God saves. So Zechariah, you, I remember, God is saying, I remember, I remember, I am faithful, Elizabeth. John, I am the merciful one. And it's going to be my son that is going to provide salvation. So to this morning, I want you to consider this. As you bring it home. Are you like Mary, a level of humble doubt that God has said some things to you and it's like, I just don't know how this could actually be? Or maybe you're like my brother here, Zechariah, kind of haughty disbelief. I just don't believe it. And maybe you've been so burned because you've been praying to God for all of these years and it seems like God has not answered your request. God has not answered, and you've gone from disappointment to sorrow, from sorrow to disbelief and despair, and from despair to resolve that it's not going to happen. And when your life feels like it's spinning out of control, God wants to say to you, I've got this. Is that the God that you serve this morning? I want you to consider this, that salvation and this whole Benedictus is about salvation. Salvation is the work of God and not yours. The salvation is what God does to rescue his people, to redeem his people, to restore his people, and to release you to go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel. That's all of God, not of you. There's a second thing I need you to know as we take this home. Salvation comes through only one person, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As proud as this father was, he spent this whole Benedictus focusing on the Savior that was to come, not his son. And we need to do exactly the same thing, that salvation comes by no other name but the name Jesus Christ. So salvation is the work of God, not ours. Salvation comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Salvation brings you forgiveness and the blessings of God through his tender mercies. I desperately need to be forgiven. So do you. That that Zechariah and Elizabeth, as holy and righteous as they were, needed a savior. So do you. And this morning, if you're sitting here, In your sin, I want to tell you that there is a Savior who could set you free. If you're sitting here today in your guilt, there is a grace that is there found in the gospel of God's amazing grace. Salvation is granting you forgiveness, and salvation is granting you mercy. I need you to also understand that salvation is about redemption. Somebody had to pay a price 
for you to be redeemed, to be brought back. You can't do that on your own. And Jesus Christ, when he hung on a cross 2,000 years ago, bled and died for you if you trust in him today. And he doesn't just simply forgive you. He wants to free you. He wants to change you radically from the inside out. And then he wants to release you to go out into the world to share this good news of the gospel with others. The last thing I want you to consider is this. Salvation only comes to those who humbly acknowledge their desperate need. I don't know when it was in that nine-month period of time, but Zechariah went from haughty disbelief to worship. He went from, I don't believe you, God, to, I believe you so much that I'm going to tell you that this is in the past tense. It's already done. Is that the confidence that you have in God? It's not that it can't be. It is that God is the rescuing God. Where do you place your assurance this morning? Zechariah put his assurance rock solid on the person and work of Christ. He may not have known everything that was to occur, but he went back to his Old Testament. Because you remember, the Old Testament looks forward to Christ. The New Testament looks back. So study your word. Look for Christ. And this Christmas season, remember that God remembers you. Remember that God is faithful. Remember that God is merciful. And remember that God alone saves. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. Ah, Zechariah, I so appreciate the fact that, Lord, you put people in the scriptures and you tell us about all their failures and their struggles. Father, we don't have perfect leaders in the scriptures as other religions do. They sanitize their leaders. We don't do that. We heard of King David, Father, and what he has done, and you, yet he was a man after your own heart. And if we look at the life of Abraham, Father, he made so many mistakes, but once again, you had put your covenant into Abraham's life. And the reason is, is that they're not perfect men. They are looking forward to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, if there is anyone here this morning that has been going through levels of disbelief in their life, I just don't believe it, God. And as their lives seem like they're spinning out of control, Lord, I pray that you would tell them that you've got it. You've got it. You're in control. Lord, maybe there's some in this room that have been praying for weeks and months and years for things, and it feels as though you have not heard them. Lord, I pray that they would hear this morning that you hear and you remember Lord, if there's anyone here who has never trusted in your son, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that you would open their eyes to draw them to faith. But for the many of us that are in this room that do know you, Lord, help us to praise you as as Zechariah did. Bless you. Praise you. Because you've rescued us and you've redeemed us and you've released us and you've remembered your promises to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been Lessons for Life with James Long Jr. We hope you've been blessed. For more information, go to jameslongjr.org.